Many times the old hymns are long forgotten, aren't they, in our day? Yet they speak so powerfully from hundreds of years past. We might have noticed that we were playing a CD as you came in. and It's a CD we've played before. Uh, it's named Unbelief. And it's a, it's, a, it's a compilation work of some people. It's a, it's a compilation of hymns, old hymns, from the Gadsby Hymnal. Um, and the Gadsby Hymnal has fallen out of popularity, you know. It's, it's not in the pews today. Uh, but many of those songs are being resurrected and, uh, and re-fashioned uh, for our ears. Listen to the words of uh, one of the songs that is ministered to me in particular this week. Notice the corporate nature of the, of the words, even though it's about the gospel. And, and the title of it is, The Gospel Brings Tidings. It was written by William Gadsby. Um, and so listen to the words. The gospel brings tidings, glad tidings indeed, to mourners in Zion who want to be freed from sin and Satan and Mount Sinai's flame. The good news of salvation through Jesus the Lamb. What sweet invitations the gospel contains to men heavy laden with bondage and chains. It welcomes the weary to come and be blessed with ease from their burdens in Jesus to rest. For every poor mourner who thirsts for the Lord, a fountain is opened in Jesus the Word. Their poor parched conscience to cool and to wash from guilt and pollution from dead works and dross. A robe is provided, their shame now to hide, in which none are clothed, but Jesus is bride. Though it be costly, yet is the robe free, and all Zion's mourner shall debt with it be. Aren't you glad that the gospel has come to us through Jesus Christ? The good news We're talking about Jonah. A man who in his day was running from God. We said last week, can you flee the presence of God? Well, in Jonah, we find someone who was at least trying to flee from the presence of God. So if you'll take your Bible and turn to Jonah. I know he's one of those small books there in the Old Testament. Not many people maybe have read his book. or Most of us have heard his story though. In, in children's rhymes and in children's storybooks, we hear it all the time, don't we? This story in the children's book is all about a fish that swallows a man and then pukes him up on the sand, right? That, that's, all, that's what we get from the story of Jonah. Not much else is remembered by children. Songs that are sung about Jonah are about the fish swallowing the man. Wouldn't you agree? That's generally what we remember. And what I said last week and said the previous week was, that's not, Jonah, that's not the point of the book of Jonah as God gave it to us. The point of the book of Jonah is that there is a clear call on a man's life, and yet he ran from God. Right? And I made the application last week that many here have run from God in the past. Maybe you're running today. Maybe you'll start running in the future. But it's a natural thing that when God places a call on us, that number one, we might be afraid. Number two, we might not want to obey. 
There may be a myriad of reasons why we do it, but we often run from God. It's not uncommon to have this experience. It's not as if Jonah's the only person who's ever run from God. And so the book is more about a man who had a call on his life and ran from God, and yet wherever he went, what? God was already there. Run as fast and as far as you want to run. When you get where you're headed, God will be there. You can't outrun Him. And we made allusion to, uh, uh, to, to the text in Psalm 136 where David says, even if I went down to the grave, God would be there. If I went to the other side of the sea, maybe Jonah knew this psalm. And yet he still tried to run to the other side of the sea. Remember, he went the direct opposite of where he was supposed to go. He was here, Nineveh here. He went down to Joppa and then uh, trying to go across the sea to Spain, to, to Tarshish in southern Spain, as far away from where God wanted him to go as he could go. So when we left him, he was running from the presence of the Lord. And as a matter of fact, the reason he may have been running, or we, we're led to believe later, or we're told later in, in Jonah 4, that the reason he's running is he doesn't want to go to the people God sending him. He hates them. They're his enemies. And he doesn't want to take the message that God gives him because he feels they'll repent and God will be merciful because we serve a very merciful God. But look at verse 3. As we ended last week, we looked at verse 3 and it says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And that's where we left him. He was boarding the boat. He was getting ready to go on this voyage with these ship on this ship. He was trying with all of his might to get out of the presence of God. Whatever he could do, he was doing it to get away from God. And yet he already knew that God was God of heaven and sea and earth, as we read in Psalm 109. Not just the God of heaven or earth, but of the sea also. And I want to say to you from the very beginning today, in way of application, again, don't lose this. If you're here today and you're running from God, you cannot escape Him. You can never go so far that He won't see you where you are, meet you where you are, and even offer salvation to you from where you are. The great thing about our God is that He does not sit in heaven and wait on us to come to Him. But He's always painted in Scripture as going after the lost to save them. And what we'll see today is that even though there are storms in this life and they may cause us to rise up in our heart and say, how dare God do this to me? I don't deserve it. But yet, this might be the very mercy of God. The storm that you're in right now, the hard times, and I don't know what they may be for you. Death, loss of job, loss of family, loss of friends, not doing well in school. I don't know. Troubles with your wife. 
rebellious children. I don't know what the storms are. But what I want to redirect your thought to is there may, these things may be far from a curse. They may be the gentle hand of a loving God that wants to bring you back to Him. That may be what they're doing. That may be the circumstances that you're facing. I know I've faced them. I know many here have faced them, and maybe you're facing them today. So let's look at the response in Jonah's situation. And there's going to be two applications for us today. Two things that I want us to go home with, and hopefully they'll be made clear. God will use His unlimited power in pursuit of His rebellious sons. God will use His unlimited power to gain back His sons. Nothing will stop Him from having the ones that He loves. Nothing. No circumstance, nothing. Look in, in, in John, Jonah verse 4. But the Lord, you might see the Lord sent a great wind upon the sea. In your translation. That's a very passive translation. The ESV gets it exactly right. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. He didn't just allow a storm to come up and go into the path of Jonah. He threw it like a 95-mile-an-hour fastball down the middle of the plate. He threw it directly at him. He didn't say, maybe this storm that's coming will actually go where I want it to go. No. He put it on a path and a plot that would consume Jonah and consume the ship. And he didn't just say then, you can go if you choose. No, he took that formed storm and threw it. At Jonah from heaven. That's the picture of the Hebrew language here. Not just passive God, active God. You want to run from me, son? I'll bring you back. You think you can go to Tarshish and run away from my will? I'll do what it takes to bring you back. And what it took in Jonah's case was a storm. And so God actively created a storm and hurled it at Jonah. We're to understand that God is not passively allowing natural occurrences from heaven. That's one implication from texts like this. Don't miss that. We've just in this state experienced a very tragic storm. Nine people dead at a high school. Thousands other in, of, of, of other things, you know, whether it be mental damage that was done or physical damage that was done. Loss of property. Loss of animal life. There's all this destruction, and that's from one storm, and the state was covered with them on Thursday. Many people suffered. Lots of people died. One little seven-year-old girl died in Missouri. And the world would have us believe that's, that's just a coincidence. That's just an act of nature. And yet, I would say, we don't know the reason why it's done, but I would say that God directs that storm just like all other storms. There's no storm that happens by chance. There's no wind that arises yet that God doesn't control. It's every breath. And give it its breath. And tell it how long it will be on the ground. And tell it when it will dissipate and go away. These are not just natural occurrences. We as Christians have to fight the desire to be deistic. Deistic meaning God up here and us down here. The world and the universe just occurring and God's just passively hands held high. Just letting it happen. No. The picture of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is that for all of eternity, God has been fashioning and forming every instance that has occurred. 
Every one of them. And we don't know his purpose. You might say, well, is somebody in the enterprise disobedient to God? I can't say that. I don't know. There's, there's many reasons why he might have let these storms occur. He might have created them. He might have placed them there. I don't know. We'll get to some of the results of that, though. Those storms or tragedy. We'll get to some of those in just a minute. What the results are. But we, we're to see that God uses anything to bring his rebellious sons back home. God's willing to bring an entire ship of people to the point of death to hold Jonah, to hold on to Jonah during his rebellion. Did you think of that when you read verse 4? Do you realize there were maybe a hundred shipmen on that boat not running from God? And yet God put every one of them in danger for one man. And not just that, but we're not to believe this was a local storm that only Jonah's ship suffered. Probably every ship in that area suffered. All of them were under threat of loss. God didn't just come after Jonah and affect Jonah, but everyone around him was affected. And God was not willing to let his son go off in rebellion. So he used this storm and he's bringing him back. Now, our response to rebellion is very different than, than God's, isn't it? The Lord hurled a great wind and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. I can think of some responses I have towards rebellion. First of all, I might say, God, why put innocent, innocent people in danger for one man? Why put all of these lives at peril? Why risk all of them from fear and the emotional trauma of having this storm on them when they didn't do anything to deserve the storm. Also, you can have Jonah. See, I would think more local, like, just plague Jonah. And yet, we're going to see some great reasons in this text why God didn't just plague Jonah, but plagued everybody on the ship. We, we need to be very careful in judging God in His works. We often run to conclusions and answers. And we're not even asking the right questions, thinking the right thoughts. Some of you in your life are facing these storms. Maybe not a storm on the sea, but these storms I've described earlier. Death, loss of life, loss of family, loss of property, loss of popularity, loss of a job, loss of a wife, loss of whatever it is. A child to rebellion. And all you can think of is how this is a bad thing. And we've rushed to judgment. I do it all the time. This isn't fair. It's not nice. I don't like this. I don't appreciate this. God hates me. And yet nothing could be further from the truth. God loves Jonah. He loves him so much that he refused to let him continue in sin. Maybe as... Christians, we can apply this to our life, right? Other Christians are in sin. Others are in sin around us. And we ignore the sin for fear of the repercussions of confronting the sin. Well, I know what they're doing is wrong. But you know, if I say anything, they, they, you know, they may not love me anymore. They may not have a relationship with me anymore. God... God-like love refuses to 
to let someone stay in sin and goes to all costs to bring them back. God-like love doesn't passively sit by and say, well, I'm just going to love them into hell. God-like love says, no, I'll go like Jude and even snatch some out of the fire. After they're singed, after they're tainted with sin, I'm still going to go after them. I'm still going to try to snatch them back from the clutches of rebellion. God loves Jonah. God doesn't passively sit by and wait on Jonah to repent. He brings Jonah to repentance. So God uses His unlimited power to pursue the rebellious son. Secondly, in a time of trouble, many people will turn to religion or works to appease God's wrath. We see that in verse 5. Look at what they did. These ship men, these heathens, these sinners, these lost men. The storm comes up and the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. Religion. Each one of them cried out to their God. I told you unintent are results from, from destruction. 9-11. 9-11 impacted this nation and nations all over the world and brought people to religion. It lasted for a few weeks. And when this terror was gone, no matter how many terror levels the government puts out, people aren't afraid of terrorists anymore. When's the last time you thought about something blowing up in the United States? I dare say most people go day to day and don't think anything about it. But when the thought was raw and in our minds that three and a half thousand people died in one fell swoop, boy, the churches brimmed over, filled up. On a Tuesday night, churches filled up. People I'd never seen in church. People I thought would never darken the door of a church. All of a sudden were coming to me, weeping. What's going to happen? What do I need to do? The heart of a man is when he's in danger to turn to something bigger than him. Most of the time it's to some type of God. Whether it be the Christian God or not. Whether it be Jehovah, Yahweh. We, we don't know, but they often instinctively turn to religion. The Phoenicians were renowned sailors. Why were they afraid? Because they understood that the Mediterranean had seasons of, of wind. Acts chapter 27, Paul faces this when he's on his missionary journey. Well, actually, he's, under, he's bound and headed as a prisoner. And the men waited to sail because of the fear of the storm season. There was a storm season in the Mediterranean and the Phoenicians knew this storm wasn't during season. It was out of place. It was abnormal. It wasn't what we normally experience at this season of the year. We shouldn't be having a storm like this. It scared them to death. All their experience said it shouldn't happen and it happened. And so they were afraid and they naturally turned to, in this season of fear, to cry out to somebody, to their gods. Tornadoes. I've experienced two tornadoes in my life at my location, on the ground. Not, not in the, I've probably experienced hundreds of them over my head and didn't know they were there. But I'm talking about on the ground, plowing up dirt, glass flying. One of them was when I was at school. Every person in our school was praying. Everybody. 
There was no exception. When that glass, pane glass door blew out in our school and that tornado crossed in front of us to hit the shopping center across the street, every person in the building was on their face before God, crying out, save us. I heard promises. I, I, was, I, was, I was a young elementary kid. I heard grown men making promises to God. If you do, let me get home tonight, I'll do this and such. Some of you have been in danger, maybe not by a tornado, but by something else. Maybe you've been caught in, in a sin. Maybe you're about to lose a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a wife, a husband, and you say, Lord, if you can just get me through this, I'll serve you the rest of my life. You know what the funny thing is? Nobody in the school a week later was any different. Nobody. <laughs> During the crisis, they cried out. But when the crisis was gone, they returned to life. And that happens over and over again. When people are pressed, when they're in crisis, they cry out. And yet, many times they don't actually turn to God in repentance. Because fear of God is necessary for salvation, it's easy to confuse that fear with right fear of God. See, many people in our culture fear God. Many people do. I don't, matter of fact, I've not met many people that when they're in these crises don't have fear of something bigger than them. And yet, not everybody's a Christian, so what's the difference? There's a fear that causes us to tremble and to cry out in crisis. And then there's a fear that comes on us of respect, of honor, of righteousness, knowing that He is something we are not, and knowing I can't be like Him. And that causes a cry from the heart, far different from God, get me out of this crack I'm in so that I can serve you. It causes a right fear to arise in the heart that says, Lord, if you kill me in this storm, I'll serve you. Lord, if you kill me, I just want relief. If you kill me, I will believe in Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, I'm believing. I've seen that fear also. I think that was the fear of Jonah. You know, it's interesting that the mariners feared God in this text in verse 5, chapter 1. Then we're going to see again in verse 16 that the men feared God. And I'm going to make the case when I preach that message, it's a different fear. Totally different fear. In this instance, they're afraid. They want to be saved. They don't want to drown. In 16, they're saying, He is God of heaven and earth, and I want to believe in Him. Different fear. These are the two fears I'm talking about. Many of you fear God in crisis, but do you fear Him? Do you respect Him? Do you honor Him when life is not in crisis? It's a question to ask. It's a thought to have. The sailors prayed to their false gods, and they not only turned to religions and false gods, but they turned to works. Look in 5b, the text right there in front of us. They cried out to their gods, and they, same word as what God did earlier with the wind, they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten their load. Men turn to two things in crisis. One, they say, God, if you'll save me from this, I'll serve you. And two, they think that when that crisis is over, or maybe even during that crisis, they think, I've got to make myself better. 
so this crisis will go away. Self-improvement. If I'm better, God will relent. He'll back up. If I work harder, I do the right things, He won't continue this storm in my life. Okay? So the motivation is I don't want the storm. The motivation is not I love God with all my heart and soul and mind and if He slays me, I'll serve Him. The thought in the mind is, Lord, save me from this danger, whatever it takes. And I'll do some good things. I'll improve myself. Now, what they did was not wrong. It was probably the tactic they used any time they were in a storm. It implies their very real fear. They were willing to throw away their livelihoods. This was their money. This was what they were going to eat on. They were throwing it in the ocean. It was ruined. It was no good. They threw it all in to lighten the load and try to survive. You may have come here today in circumstances that you're facing. The question is, do you fear the consequences of your circumstances or do you honor God? Because you can fear your circumstances and never be saved. But once you honor God in your heart and you fear Him, you will be saved. Once you actually honor Him in your heart and fear Him, you will be saved. The natural response in a time of trouble is to work hard, improve the situation, make myself better. But you cannot earn acceptance with God. If you're running from God today, the plea of this passage and this book and the plea from this man is stop running and fear God. Believe Him, respect Him, honor Him, and repent of your sins. We often use these big churchy words like repent. Okay, so I want to make it simple. Repentance requires four things. It involves four things. If you're writing something down, write this down. Repentance requires recognition of who you are. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you don't know that's you, you cannot repent. You can't confess to a crime until you believe you committed a crime, Right? can't be true confession until you really know I'm guilty. And so that's the first thing that's required is to know who you are, to recognize who you are. Romans 5.10 says we are the enemies of God before we're in Christ. You're an enemy of God if you're here today without Christ. Recognize who you are. Recognize who God is. You move from who you are to who He is. Okay, I'm a sinner, but what does that mean? Well, God is righteous. God is the creator of all things. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Creator, being the creator, makes Him the authority. If you create something, you have authority over it. You control it. It's yours. He's the lawgiver in Exodus 20. You say, what's righteousness? God responds. In Exodus 20, He says, here's righteousness. These ten things must be done for a man to be righteous. And the thing is, is that God is the only one who can make us righteous. We've all failed. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all broken the law. No one goes without guilt. All of us in this room have sinned. And so what does God do in Romans 3, verse 20? The Bible says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What that says simply is, if you're working your way to heaven, you'll never get there. You cannot earn salvation. 
You cannot be good enough. God will never accept you based on your righteousness. Never will He do it. We are sinners. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a appeasement, a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance He had passed over sins, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of those who believe. And so here's, here's what repentance involves. You've got to know you're a sinner. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I'm an enemy of God. God is righteous. God is perfect. God is the Creator. He has the authority. He gave the law. I have failed. How will I ever be made right? By Christ. By Christ alone. There's no other hope. There's no other rock. There's nothing else to save us. And so he says, he has put Christ forward. Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, died so that we might be set free and made sons of God. Repentance requires the recognition of Christ as the only one who can save us from our sin. We have to recognize who we are, recognize who God is, and recognize who Christ is. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through who? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Repentance involves the recognition of Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. Jesus is God in the flesh. The Bible clearly tells us that He became flesh, lived in the world, was without violation of the law, gave Himself up to the cross so that He might die in the place of His sheep, and then God raised Him from the dead on the third day. That's what it's required of us as we repent to believe. He died in the place of those who would believe so that we could be reconciled, made a part of God's family, acceptable to God. In Christ, it is possible to be made a friend or a child of God in Christ. And the final step in repentance, the final step in repentance is we must repent of our sinful works and believe in Jesus Christ. You know who you are. You know who God is. You know who Christ is. That's not enough. Now comes the repentance. Now I say, all of my life I forsake. Everything, good, bad, indifferent, if I think it has no moral bad in it, I still believe it's bad. I still believe I'm sinful. Everything is sinful in me. And we then receive or believe in Christ. Romans 9, 10, 9 through 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Your hard works, your good deeds, your attendance at church, your work in the church will never be enough to save you. You must cling to Jesus Christ and Him alone. These storms we've been talking about in Jonah's life and in our lives. Okay? Repentance means... Far from just wanting out of those storms, 
repentance is, true repentance is clinging to Christ in the storm. Clinging to Christ in the, in the storm. The expectation of a true believer is never to be necessarily delivered in this life from the hard times. The expectation of the believer is that my shepherd loves me and when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear the evil that surrounds me because I know he's with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. He prepares for me a banquet table in the presence of my enemies. He bids me come and sit and rest at that table and eat when all the storms of life rage around me. Jonah, in verse 6, and the end of verse 5, and then in verse 6, is shown to hate or, or to be so tired, so worn out from his travel, that he's asleep. I'm going to tell you what I also think. I didn't read this in a commentary. If I'm wrong, surely the Lord will show me. I think there's another d- dynamic in this rest is sleep. You see, I think Jonah was a believer. I think Jonah was saved. And I think when he left Joppa, he expected God to bring him home. I don't think he left in the expectation that he would go and live his life in Tarshish in peace. I think he expected the hound of heaven to hunt him down and bring him home. And so he's not shocked when the sea captain runs in and says, what are you doing, you sleeper? Get up! That's not frustration. It's just unbelief. Like, this is unbelievable. The ship's about to sink and you're asleep. Jonah rubs his eyes. Notice the words of the captain. Arise. Call on your God. Do you recognize that call? Look back in the previous verses. Up in the top of the chapter. When God addresses Jonah, what does he say? Arise, go to Nineveh. And what does the sea captain say? Arise and call on your God. I think when Jonah woke up hearing those words in his ears, I really believe he thought, I knew he was coming. And then through his grogginess, he sees the sea captain, not God. But it doesn't change what he knows. Because what does he do? We're going to see that he actually tells the people to throw him into the ocean. He didn't know a fish was coming. And he wasn't in desperation. He was finally resigned to obedience. I'm a sinner. I serve a great God. He has promised salvation. Throw me into the water. He will save me. He will save me through this storm. He doesn't throw himself in. He's thrown in. Who is he trusting in? He's trusting in the same God that was on the boat with the disciples in Mark chapter 4. He's trusting that God. And he knew his God controlled the sea. And he knew his God controlled the storms. And he knew whether he died or not, it didn't matter. It doesn't matter. I deserve to die, I think was the plea of his heart. I deserve it. If I get it, I'm getting what I deserve. I deserve to die. And 
And so we have this man running from the presence of God all the time in his mind knowing God's going to be there, expecting God to show up to the point that I think not only was he tired, but he was in perfect relaxation in the bottom of that ship. And when they woke him up, he wasn't shocked. There was a storm raging outside. No shock at all. He doesn't say, wow, we're in the middle of a boat. This isn't the storm season. What's going on? No, he said, I'm a Hebrew. (laughs) I serve Yahweh, the God of, notice what he said, of the sea and of the dry land. He knew his God sent the storm. Nobody had to tell him God was sending the storm for him. He knew what it was all about. He knew what it was all about. And I dare say there are Christians here who knows what the storms in your life are all about. You know. You don't need me to be a prophet and tell you. You know that you're a child of God and you're running in sin. And there may even be this calm or this rest in your heart that says, He's going to come get me. I know He is. And I would just encourage you, respond to Him now. Respond to Him now. Whatever the storm is, it's not going to relent and it's not going to go away. It's going to continue. And there have even been cases where, God, that storm lasted all of life. William Cooper wrote a hymn called God Works in Mysterious Ways. See, Cooper had a storm. It wasn't on the ocean. It was in his mind. It's in his mind. He raged in that storm his whole life. He was a depressed man. Depressed to the point that he sat motionless for days on end. Unable to do anything. Gripped with terror. Fearful that he would die and go to hell. He was afraid of hell. He was afraid of God. Knowing he was a Christian, he was still afraid. This war was raging. And he wrote this great hymn. And talked about the fact that his God rode on those storms across the seas and that although he couldn't understand what was going on in life and we can't understand what's going on in life God still works in mysterious ways his blessings to unfold he saw it as a blessing so what are the applications for you to take home two I said earlier two one question form. Are you in a storm of life today? Are you in the storm of life today? And secondly, question to ask yourself is do I cling to Christ and Him alone for salvation? Jonah did. Do you? That's the question. Jonah clinged to Christ and him alone. Do you? Only you can answer these two questions and apply them to your life through the Holy Spirit. I can't answer them for you. I can't plead with you. My plea for you is don't run anymore from God. Don't run in sin. Don't run in rebellion. Repent. And cling to Christ. Believe and be saved. And whether the storm stops or not, that calm that passes all understanding 
will enter your life. And you'll say, yet though you slay me, will I serve you. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are a good God.